0: listening to The Loop Podcast, a project in plastic surgery innovation. Welcome back to The Loop Podcast. I'm Dr. Sanam Zahidi, your host for today's episode, which is another episode in our in-depth review series, where we have in-depth conversations with esteemed faculty from around the world. Our focus for today's discussion is on body contouring surgery, and I'm very excited to introduce our very esteemed guest, past president of the California Society of Plastic Surgeons, and our beloved former program director and director of body contouring at UC Davis, Dr. Michael Wong. Welcome, Dr. Wong, to the Loop Podcast.
1: Thank you, Sanam. It's great to see you, albeit virtually.
0: (laughs) That is correct. So a quick question for you. What inspired you to go into plastic surgery and into academics?
1: I entered general surgery residency as a preliminary resident, and I was slated to go into urology. Uh, But what happened is, as I got exposed to more urology, I realized I was becoming less and less interested in it. And during my PGY2 year, I had the opportunity to uh, see a tram. And uh, this made me look at plastic surgery in a whole new different light. I'd grown up doing puzzles as a child and would always get frustrated at the end when it came to putting in the final piece, and I found that it was missing, And the neat thing about plastic surgery is it's a specialty that when you're presented with a problem of a missing piece, you just create one. And so uh, in this particular case, you know, we're taking the tissue from her abdomen, something that she didn't want, and we repurposed it to reconstruct a breast. And uh, for me, that was really a pivotal moment, because I had never thought of plastic surgery in that way. And so after that, I I really started eagerly seeking out opportunities to learn more about plastic surgery. And uh, here I am a few years later. As for academics, um, I grew up appreciating the value and importance of education. Uh, My grandfather grew up in a small village in southern China, and he didn't have access to formal education. So when he moved to the States and raised his family, um, clearly the importance of education was highly emphasized. In addition, my my mother was a school teacher. And so it was always, um, it was only natural for me to consider um, a career in academics. Uh, my residency at Duke, I had mentors, uh, Scott Levin and Greg George Ade, and they were all very encouraging of me and my academic pursuits. And so When the opportunity arose to take a position at UC Davis, I certainly jumped at that. And after all, it was this academic position in Sacramento where I grew up. So it was a win-win for me and my family. I think
0: I can speak for everyone at UC Davis when I say I think it was a win for UC Davis as well.
1: Thank you, Sandy. You're very kind.
0: So as a former program director, do you have any advice for the newly starting residents and what they should look forward to?
1: Uh, Well... Certainly make the most of every opportunity you're given. You may not fully appreciate it now, but uh, being a plastic surgery resident is a true privilege that many uh, would really die to have. And so uh, don't squander it. Study hard. Certainly prepare for conferences, prepare for your cases. Your faculty are clearly there because they value the opportunity to pass on their experience and their wisdom to you. So I'd encourage you to take advantage of that opportunity. You know, each one of them went into academics because they I really hope that ultimately you that comes after will be able to do even better than they have hopefully that the next generation will build on all the things that you know we've accomplished and that you your new generation will take plastic surgery to new heights
0: Awesome. Thanks, Dr. Wong. The reason I have you joining the conversation today, and we decided we were going to talk about body contouring. So let's bring the focus back a little bit to that. Can you walk us through a typical preoperative evaluation and things to consider when the patient just walks in through your door in clinic?
1: Sure. Uh, obviously, the first thing to do is to really understand what the patient is looking for, try to dig into what their priorities are and what they hope to get out of the body contouring. Particularly in post-bariatric surgery patients, they frequently have numerous areas of concern that affect them basically from head to toe and circumferentially, as you know. And so I encourage them to try to identify their top three areas of concern to really help guide and focus my consultation. So that's one, priorities. The second thing that's really important is understanding their expectations and get a gauge of how realistic those uh, expectations are. Obviously, the better that there's a match in terms of their expectations and what I think I can really realistically deliver is going to ultimately lead to a better match in terms of their satisfaction with their surgery. Another thing that's really important is their weight history and knowing how they lost their weight. Did they have bariatric surgery, for instance? And if so, what type that can influence potentially whether or not they have uh, issues with nutritional things that might compromise their healing postoperatively. operatively um, I'm interested in knowing about their weight maximum, their minimum, their current and uh, what they think their weight goal is. And obviously their corresponding BMIs, as you know, a patient that presents with a BMI of 30 that hasn't had weight significant weight loss is a very different patient than a patient that's gone from a BMI of 40 and then gone down to a BMI of 30, completely different and should have different expectations in terms of uh, what we can deliver. And so making sure that you understand that's very helpful. Um, For me, the way I've put it all together is I have an intake sheet that my staff affectionately calls a gingerbread form. And I think you've probably seen it coming through the clinic. Uh, In it, I ask patients to circle their, (laughs) yeah, I remember, I ask them to circle their top three areas of concern. And again, just to help them focus. And uh, underneath that little gingerbread figure, I have a, a graphical BMI scale that I copied from uh, Peter Rubin, uh, where I asked them to basically identify where they see themselves now, where they saw themselves when they were at their heaviest and where their goal is. And if they're certainly not at their contouring goal weight yet, then that would maybe remind us that we need to be discussing additional weight loss to make them ideal candidates for their surgery. So basically once I'm armed with that information, before I even step into the room, I have a pretty good idea of what I'm going to see um, in the patient. Uh, I have a mental picture of what this person will look like. And if I walk into the room and see that there's a match in terms of what they've put down on paper and what that image conjured up in my mind, if there's a match, then I'm on pretty stable ground that we're probably going to be talking in the same language. If, however, I have an image in my mind, And I walk into the room and the patient's clearly significantly heavier than what I thought when I saw the silhouettes that they circled, then um, it's going to take probably a little bit more work to make sure that we get onto the same page and same understanding, same scale, so that ultimately when we do surgery, we can expect to have the same scale of expectations and so hopefully match uh, satisfaction better.
0: Gotcha. You hinted on it a little bit, but do you have a BMI cutoff?
1: I do. I encourage all my patients to get below a BMI of 30 if at all possible. As you know, the literature is replete with evidence that show that complications, body contouring are significantly higher patients that have BMI's above 30. So ideally, I would love to have all my patients below 30 if at all possible. Clearly, sometimes that's not possible, but um, I certainly encourage them to try and, and the reason being is one, safety, uh, which is first and foremost in my mind, but two, and they may not fully understand this too, but if they can get their BMI lower, there's certainly an opportunity for improved aesthetic results. So the things that I can deliver for them are much better if they can be a little bit lighter. So if I see a patient that comes in clearly above a BMI of 30, we'll discuss that, the the important role that getting to a lower weight can have on their safety and their ultimate aesthetic outcome. And then I'll encourage them to, you know, go back home, work on some weight loss, and then come back and see me in a few months. And for me, it's an opportunity to really track the patient and court the patient and to see how good of a fit we're going to be as a partnership, because, you know, ultimately when they come back, let's say three or six months, and let's say they haven't quite hit their 30 goal goal. But I can see that they were very sincere and they made some good efforts. And basically, I'm trying to answer the question in my mind, is this a patient that if they had a complication, I'd be able to walk through that complication with them and they'd be able to handle that? And uh, if the answer is yes, then I would be willing to take on a patient at a higher BMI than 30. If, however, again, they haven't really given it a great effort or I don't see that they're going to be a person that I think that I'll be able to work through those complications with, then I will certainly be more insistent on the important role that getting to a BMI of 30 or lower can have in terms of their safety, always emphasizing safety, and that, like I said, I would be more insistent on that cutoff line.
0: That makes sense. And I've definitely seen it in action for sure. And you've hinted on this also a little bit. So I think it's a good time to ask you, what do you tell the patients regarding their postoperative complications? You mentioned that you try to manage their expectations. Are there some tactics that you can share with us?
1: Well, certainly I want to make sure that they understand what are the main complications. And as you know, one of the most common things is wound healing issues. If we're doing these circumferential procedures, You know, these incisions can be measured in feet. And with that, nutrition plays an even more important role in their ultimate healing from their surgery. So as you know, when patients have bariatric surgery, depending on the type they have, they may have some challenges with nutritional issues. So their nutrition needs to be perfect. Protein needs to be perfect. In fact, going into surgery with a supernormal protein level can be helpful as some patients postoperatively have difficulties maintaining high level of protein intake. And if so, you can kind of essentially live off of your protein stores that you've built up a little bit. So I do encourage them to work on their protein pre-operatively and remind them that postoperatively I'll be encouraging them to take between one and a half and two grams of protein per kilo weight to ensure that they have the smoothest possibility of post-operative healing. So again, important role that nutrition plays. Um, other things that, as you know, if you have, for instance, a gastric bypass, one thing I want to make sure is that they don't have issues with anemia. Certainly that can play a role in wound healing, but I'm trying to minimize the chance that they are going to need a post-operative uh, transfusion. So certainly if we can get their preoperative hemoglobin up to normal levels, I think that helps put them in good stead. Probably the most dreaded complication in our post-bariatric patients would be a DVT or a PE. And so certainly, we need to take every precaution in all of our patients. And certainly, all patients before induction of anesthesia, we're going to be putting SCDs on. The second thing, too, is early mobilization is key. And they need to be reminded that when they go home, too, they, they need to be up and moving around. But certainly, there are some patients that may have risk factors for having these venous thrombosis type events. And so, if we know that they have more risk factors, perhaps based on a Caprini scale, which is I most commonly use, might even consider selectively giving patients chemoprophylaxis with Lovenox. And typically, I'll, I'll start at six hours after their procedures check their drains, make sure they're not frankly bloody, and I'll give them their first dose of 30 sub-Q and then continue that on for a week postoperatively. Those can be some uh, pretty important things that we can do in terms of helping improve their safety profile and and making sure that they have a nice, safe postoperative journey.
0: Great. And do you stage your patients in terms of their procedures?
1: Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Because most patients come in and if they're honest with themselves, there are numerous areas that they could potentially be interested in. And a lot of patients will ultimately want to have some surgeries, uh, perhaps head to toe. And so I would love to be able to do that for them. And I do share that with them, but I also remind them that we want to try to make sure that they're safe throughout their whole post course. And one way to help improve the chance that they're safer is to stage the procedures. So I remind them that I try to keep my procedures close to six hours maximum, if at all possible. And so that does allow us to break things up into smaller, more bite-sized, more manageable and safer uh, procedures. And so it's all based on their priorities. So again, going back to their time of consultation, when they identify their top areas of concern, we can start to put together a strategy of how we can best get them through their top priorities and making sure that it's done in a sensible and safe fashion and that we can quickly address all their goals. So another benefit of staging besides safety is it's an opportunity to operate on an area just to do touch-ups on an area that we've previously operated on. So probably my most common method of staging would be start with lower body. It seems like most people are interested in abdominal contour and lower body contouring. So that's seems like a reasonable place to start, often followed by the upper body. And we can again do a circumferential uh, type procedure up there. But at the same time, under the same anesthesia, we can also address maybe minor asymmetries in scar position, or maybe there is some scar spreading due to a postoperative wound complication that healed in secondarily. And we can do little touch-ups that can improve the first area that we operated on, while we're working on another priority for the patient. So that can be another benefit for staging patients.
0: Makes sense. You've hinted at some of the body contouring procedures. So let's kind of explore them a little bit further now, if that's okay. Sure. Can we focus on belt lipectomy versus abdominoplasty?
1: Oh, absolutely. So as far as addressing the lower body first, Clearly, in massive weight loss patients, most will benefit from circumferential procedures, but for individual patient reasons, they may choose not to do so. And so if they choose to do simply a paniculectomy or an abdominal plasty instead of a circumferential procedure, that ignores some of their circumferential excess then they need to be fully counseled in the consequences of doing an anterior procedure only in the face of circumferential deformities. So basically, they need to fully understand the implications of dog ears. And for some patients that perhaps are doing this for functional reasons, maybe it's not going to bother them so much. But certainly those that are doing it for more aesthetic reasons, this is certainly something that can ultimately lead to some dissatisfaction. So again, back to patient expectation and being able to meet those, it's also about informing them ahead of time the consequences of some of the choices that they may decide upon. With regards to circumferential procedures, basically those can be divided into maybe a belt lipectomy, as you mentioned, or a lower body lift. And really what it boils down to is how high is your incision. So belt lipectomies in general have a higher incision than the lower body lift incisions. The advantage of a belt lipectomy type positioning of your incision is that in some patients, they desire more waist contour, waist narrowing, and improvement in that area. So the belt lipectomy, because the incision's higher, can be more effective in addressing the, some of those concerns. If, however, they're more concerned about thigh texture and uh, rightids that they may see in their inner and outer thighs, then perhaps positioning the incision a little bit lower, closer to those areas where the pull is more effective then having a lower body lift type procedure would be more effective. And so in general, those are the two kind of decision points about what's, again, the patient's priority. What are they interested in? What are they concerned about? And then based on those things, you can tailor your procedure that you deliver in the incision position as well. Does that make sense?
0: Yes, it definitely does. Great. My next question for you is, do you use drains or quilting sutures for your abdominoplasty and why?
1: So, So typically I use 15 blade drains. So for my abdominal procedures, I use two anteriorly. For a circumferential lower body lift or a belt lipectomy, I'll also put an additional two drains in that area. So for a total of four for a circumferential procedure, um, I just haven't gone to uh, quilting sutures at, at this point. I know that there are some that talk about the benefits of that, and I haven't yet explored that personally.
0: Gotcha. Do you ever combine your your body contouring procedures, like abdominal plasty, with liposuction?
1: I certainly don't routinely combine liposuction uh, in my post-bariatric body contouring patients. I will use a liposuction cannula to help with discontinuous undermining in some areas, sometimes in the abdominal region. If I don't want to do direct undermining, we'll do some discontinuous undermining. Or I also may use that um, in the lateral thigh uh, to release the zone of adherence Um, That will then allow greater mobility and translation of that tissue and the lateral thigh to get a more effective pull. Do you
0: avoid it in that initial operation because of wound healing complications or do you assume that since you're going to be staging these patients, you can just put it in the second stage and then that way not have to, again, worry about any of the complications?
1: I certainly don't routinely offer it. Um, I know a lot of these patients, a lot of my patients are very price sensitive and adding on additional procedures at that time can be more costly. And that could be a barrier to a lot of my patients I've found. And certainly if they want uh, additional improvement and enhancement, I can certainly offer that at a second stage.
0: Gotcha. And then I know that you do quite a bit of buttock auto augmentation, any pointers for the audience?
1: Well, certainly if you're going to start doing it, I would start off being very conservative. What I mean by that is you need to make sure that you're going to be able to close. So after you've made your marks and the patient's then asleep and prone, make sure that you can easily close over those retained fascia cutaneous flaps. Remember, it should really easily come together. So certainly when I design my flaps, um, I mobilize tissue from the lateral aspect and roll that uh, on the right side. Let's say I'll be rolling that clockwise to not only enhance the volume centrally and posteriorly, but I also want to enhance the volume inferiorly. And so to do that, I'll rotate things um, in on the right side in the clockwise direction. And so remember that you're gonna be adding in additional volume. So you need to have enough soft tissue laxity that you're going to be able to pull over that preserved tissue and also enhanced volume, particularly in that posterior region. So a key point would be be conservative.
0: And then any tips for moving on to the upper body, any tips for the upper body lift or mastopexy auto augmentation that you like to do?
1: Again, I would probably like to reiterate the same thing about the mastopexy auto augmentation. Probably best to start off slow and then work up to doing the full circumferential upper body lift with the entire fascia cutaneous flap from the back. So perhaps the first good starting point would be to consider adding additional tissue just from the bra line. And so you don't have to do any position changes The patient could be done entirely supine and you could still keep that scar in the line of the bra, but then work with that additional tissue. So you get accustomed to one harvesting it and then also rotating it effectively to add to the volume of the breast that you have. Again, because you're adding additional volume, anytime you're doing a mastopexy auto augmentation, you again, you need to make sure you have enough skin envelope to be able to cover all that. So that would be one opportunity to ease yourself into that. Then as you start to get more experience, then you might consider doing a complete upper body lift with an extended fascia cutaneous flap that carries the distal most tip of the flap all the way to the midline of the back. And Mm -hmm. so certainly, again, there you need to be able to make sure that you're going to be able to close the donor site without any undue tension and two then as you're rotating that tissue you start the patient prone you harvest the flaps you leave them out you elevate from medial to lateral and once you have those flaps and you position the patient supine then you can rotate those tissues in now, before you rotate those tissues in and cover everything up with your skin brazier, you need to make sure that uh, you have good perfusion to the tip of your flap. And so you might consider using some technology to help evaluate the perfusion of those flaps. So Spy comes to mind as uh, something that could be valuable. So... I've found that because the patients, when they gain weight, the caliber of their vessels certainly are enlarged to accommodate that additional volume. And when patients lose their weight, the caliber of those vessels don't shrink commensurate to the volume that they lose. And so they actually have a very robust blood supply that allows you to routinely take tissue from all the way from the midline of the back and carry that tissue quite reliably to the anterior chest to use that whole fascia flap for uh, auto augmentation. But again, uh, your first few times you to reassure yourself, you might want to uh, go ahead and spy that.
0: Oh, for sure. Especially as I can imagine when you're first starting out, what do you think is next for the future of body contouring surgery?
1: Well, I'm certainly interested in seeing uh, some of these new skin tightening technologies, radiofrequency and other energy devices. I'm really interested in seeing if they can play a role in the massive weight loss patient. Clearly, many patients are willing to accept more scars, particularly if they're appropriately hidden in and closed and and their garments for improved contour. But if there's an opportunity to minimize the amount of scars, that's even a better value add. So I'm interested in following these technologies closely, but my sense at this point is that once you have striae or tears in the dermis, probably the best thing is to excise it. And that will allow you to optimally tighten the tissues or offer you the opportunity to rearrange those tissues and then selectively add that volume to improve contour to other areas.
0: Yeah, that sounds interesting. I know you're very busy, Dr. Wong. So thank you so much for joining us today and offering your expertise on body contouring surgery. Any final thoughts for our listeners?
1: Well, thank you, Sanam. It's it's been a pleasure. It's always great to see you. I certainly miss you and the rest of the team at UC Davis. Please give them my best regards. Congratulations to you on the success of your Loop podcast.
0: Thank you. (laughs) If you enjoy this podcast, make sure and subscribe, rate, and review us. We will continue bringing you weekly episodes addressing your life and education in plastic surgery. Follow us on Instagram at The Loop Podcast to get in the loop.